What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Jeff Winnegar is the head of equity strategy at Wisdom Tree Asset Management. In this conversation, we talk about the Federal Reserve, inflation, and the insanity that has ensued since 2020 and 2021. We had high inflation, and now we've got all sorts of chaos in markets, and Jeff is here to help us think through it all. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you guys do as well. Here is my conversation with Jeff Winnegar. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang, I've got Jeff here. Jeff, uh, I saw one of your tweets that I thought would be a great place for us to start. You previously were talking about home prices and the fact that they exploded higher and then they would go lower and then they would explode higher again. And you were essentially insinuating it is nearly impossible for the average American to plan their life when markets are going up and down and the cost of some of these assets are going up and down so much. What's driving so much oscillation between the bull and the bear cycles of various assets? Oh, wow. We're getting right with the, the uh, punch in the face to start. Yeah, look, th- think about what is a how? I mean, a house. It's an asset that with time, with the productivity of humankind, should be depreciating in price. I mean, if you think about pulling copper out of the ground a thousand years ago, what the labor intensity of that may have been as opposed to today with a massive industrial process. This is why over the course of centuries or millennia, you should have structural deflation in the cost of copper mining, just to take that example. Well, the same thing should be the situation with a home in that as we develop the technology, we should be able to erect these things virtually costlessly. 50 or 100 years hence. I mean, this is, if you, you, you look at something like a corn production chart from the Great Depression till today, how efficient we've gotten in producing these types of things. And so you have this asset that seemingly goes up every single year, home prices, U.S. home prices, Canadian home prices, British home prices, you name it, solely because of the monetary mechanism, really, because they keep printing money. And we have these boom and bust cycles. I mean, what, what we had in, in the situation 15 years ago with home prices should never occur. There shouldn't be an asset that does this ebb and flow. How do you engage family planning or retirement planning when you have a $500,000 house and you don't know if next year it's going to be worth $300,000 or $700,000? The whole point of having these central banks was pitched to us. A hundred years ago, as it was going to smooth out these economic cycles, I and mean, it's how many booms and busts do we have to have between the stock market, the housing market, various other markets? I mean, it's if we want to have stock market booms and crashes, we could just go back to 1929. The Federal Reserve was still in its infancy at that point, so it's it's kind of silly season. And this particular housing market is, um, I mean, the best word to describe it is dysfunctional. So when you look at um, kind of this boom and bust cycle, uh, this is literally a story as old as time, right? And I, and I say that and people are always like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's our saying I've heard before. But uh, one of the things that people don't know is that time was literally invented because of the church. And they were trying to actually use measurement and, and kind of do all this stuff. 
at that same moment in human history, they also were debating boom and bust cycles of economies, the price of interest, like all these different components uh, that, that were kind of going on. And we're still debating that stuff today. Is your mm -hmm. belief that the solution would be just get rid of all the central banks, get better central banks? Like if to understand the problem, maybe sometimes it's best to like identify what would the solution be and, and kind of what do you see as a way to actually avoid so many boom and busts in an economy? Well, and, and can you just get rid of them tomorrow after they've penetrated every facet of the system over the course of the last hundred years? It's, it's almost one of those things you can't really rip the bandaid off, but you need to. Um, at least attempt over time to defenestrate them. I mean, this is, you know, you take this example in the last, what, 15 months or so. How, is the cost of overnight money supposed to be zero or is the cost of overnight money supposed to be five percentage points? Why is this moving by 500 basis points in the course of 15 months? One of those two numbers was incorrect. Zero or mid five, I mean, heck, it's, at some point we may, by the time this year's out, get to a six handle on, on Fed funds. And with each passing cycle, these central banks are becoming more and more, I gotta make sure I don't knock this coffee off the ledge here. These central banks are becoming more and more powerful. I mean, it, what happens is, is your, your brain starts to repaint pictures from prior times. If you look at the old Federal Reserve from the 1970s, people didn't know who these people were. If you went back to 1980 and pulled some guy off the street and said, who's Paul Volcker? That guy didn't know who Paul Volcker was. Like your brother, your sister, they didn't know who Paul Volcker was at the time. And, you know, you think about like the 87 crash, that's when Greenspan decided with Reagan to form the plunge protection team. And I remember with my misspent youth around the turn of the century saying, like, you know, there's this thing, it's called the plunge protection team. And their point is to come in and prevent another 87 crash. Like, what are you even talking about? What's the Federal Reserve? You could speak to an educated person 20 or 25 years ago, say Federal Reserve, and they didn't know what you were talking about. That that was I remember. That was the situation. And we thought Greenspan was powerful. Greenspan took rates down to 1%. And that was considered outlandish. When Greenspan went to 1% to try to save the NASDAQ at the turn of the century, that was a wild situation in terms of central banking circles. And you know what? Everybody who vilified him for doing that was right. That created... Oh, what did it not create, Bob? <laughs> what did it not create? Think about what that did. You were lining up to purchase condominiums sight unseen in 03, 04, 05 because Greenspan went to 1% to try to save the NASDAQ because Greenspan was allowed to create the PPT 10, 15 years before that. And then we get into all the experiments with Ben Bernanke. You know, Bernanke wanted to study the Japanese situation and the, and the Great Depression. So they gave even more power to Bernanke than Greenspan. And now here we're in this situation. These people are frozen in their houses. Mortgage rates are 7%. We now suddenly this guy wants to be the reincarnation of Paul Volcker. And it's like, well, 0% policy the right rate. Now we're in the mid fives. He wants to keep going. Inflation ran out of hand. It's just, how do you structure a society when you have the cost of money being determined by committee like this, it's its a mess. So one of the things uh, I find fascinating is the Fed doesn't just set the rate of money. It also gives forward guidance. And it will tell you, we believe it's going to be at X. Mm -hmm. There's two schools of thought. One is if they say it's going to be at X and they don't put it there, they lied. They knew they were going to do it, right? And they lied. I think yeah. that's probably a little extreme. On the other hand, it is uh, they thought it was going to be at X and they were off. And so it ended up being at Y. Now, mm -hmm. if that is a 25 or 50 basis point difference, so be it. When it's a 500 basis point difference, that seems like a pretty big miss. Mm -hmm. And so if you worked at a company and you were off by 500 basis points in something so important, many would consider the single most important metric at your job to mm -hmm. be fired. <laughs> right. And so like, help me understand in terms of like, do you think it is malicious? Do you think it's just 
incompetence? Is it actually just maybe a third option, which is like this stuff is hard and economies are complex and like humans are ill-equipped to be uh, accurate in any sort of prediction? Like, how do you think through this? You notice your own confidence level um, decline as the years go on. You can see it in the comments section on your replies on Twitter. You can kind of sometimes feel, oh, this, this person's 20 years old. This person's 25 years old. Their confidence of what the future will hold, they have, don't have a large experience of being woefully incorrect on those forecasts. I do. <laughs> I've been wrong on stuff. I remember, you know, years ago, oh, inflation's around the corner. Interest rates are going to rise. And it was the exact opposite. Well, we always had inflation. They manipulated the numbers. But I would have never sold negative interest, 19 trillion in negative bond yields, for example. I was thinking rates were going to rise. Get out of your 20s, get into your 30s, get a little bit more humble. I'm only in my 40s. With each passing day, I'm more humble than the prior day because you look at things, oh man, this is really going to happen. I think next year, such and such is going to happen to the economy. And then next year rolls around and it's incorrect. And so is the word incompetence to describe central banks more like impotence. The act of saying four, six quarters from now, I expect the economic situation to look like X is an extremely difficult task. And we hang our hats on this. I mean, you would think a laissez-faire system would be a better path for the cost of money. I mean, what we've just spent five, what, five decades doing rightly is saying, okay, well, wait a minute, the wage and price controls of the early 1970s. Um, boy, that was a fool's errand. Can't have uh, the state determine the price of wages. Better determination is, is let's negotiate our wages. You and I, you're my employer, let's say, and I'm your employee, let's negotiate wages. Uh, or the price of gasoline, that was a mess. From the first oil embargo, that, that was a total mess trying to put price controls on gasoline. But then we turn around and we say, no, it's let's put this committee together and determine the cost of overnight money. It, it doesn't make any sense. How is it? And, and, and the, the bizarre thing about it is, is we have a, for all intents and purposes, a 100% universal consensus that gasoline price controls of the early 1970s is bunk economic quackery. 99 out of 100 economists, but don't dare say that the committee at the Federal Reserve of appointed economists, when anybody with some humility says this stuff is really difficult, they, you know, maybe we shouldn't have give them so much power. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really bizarre to me, um, the existence of this situation. And now we've got messes all over and what do you do with the, with the situation where you know stock markets it's something like 19 times forward earnings and now suddenly the old tina concept right there is no alternative this was the rationale behind buying let's say the s p in 2021 was there is no alternative what am i going to do i'm going to take all this neg i'm going to take negative yielding german boons ah, give me the s p something like that well now there is an alternative you could just go into cash and so now do you create this situation because of all of these, the ridiculousness of it, keeping policy at 0% rates when home prices were zooming like that, when we had a raging bull market that commenced in the first quarter of 09. I mean, you were 11, 12 years deep into a bull market and you were still keeping money at 0%. And now there is this alternative. And now you have a society where you're entering 2024 and at the margin, Somebody who's in the interest of, in the business of deploying capital may say, I do not see as much appeal deploying capital into the equity, into the, into the common equity of corporate America as to, as opposed to just parking it over here in that money market fund. That's problematic. That's problematic. And, and it, there needs to be a happy medium. And I, that, that would be the concern. That would be the concern. Like, you know, Give me five, five and a quarter, five fifty on a two-year treasury, and just wake me up in a couple of years from now. So it's, we'll see how it ends up playing out. So one group that did that is the banks, and uh, what is interesting is that these banks mistimed their purchases. They essentially were buying, you know, fifteen basis points to fifty basis point type debt. 
uh, and they were buying it on mid to long duration uh, uh, kind of treasuries or, or assets. Now, mm-hmm. as we've seen, when depositors showed up and said, give me back my money, they were underwater on that. And so I think that there's a strong argument that there was risk mismanagement by the executive teams of those banks. But can we also point to the central bank and say that maybe the central bank, whether through incompetence, malice, or just the complexity of doing their job, actually put the banks in the position to buy the debt, which then led to the banks imploding? And it's the basic business model uh, uh, of the bank, right? Is in, you, you essentially have no choice but to purchase these long-dated securities. And remember, the action in 2022 in terms of the, you know, like a, an aggregate bond index or the long end of the yield curve was some of the most brutal um, fixed income returns that they had since 1994. And so, you, you know, you, you essentially mess things up. I mean, what is it, $600 billion in mark to market losses that, that need to be uh, accounted for in the banking system? I mean, it, the issue at hand is, and we'll see how this plays out, I had been more concerned at the end of the third well, third quarter, the third month around March, you know, with this concept that I've been calling the bank walk and pump. I don't know if you've heard me say this, the, you know, the bank walk. Some people say, you know, the, the, the risk is that it becomes the bank trot. I mean, for example. Explain that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I have a lot of views on the bank walk and this is the, this is the issue where it's, it, it kind of, feeds upon itself. And the other, the, the other thing in the background, of course, is that what we had here was a mismatch uh, of, of short and long duration securities. The question is, does it end up deteriorating into a situation where it's a, your, your credit book goes kaput in, in 2024? But, you know, I've given this some, some good thought. This is the way I kind of lay this out is that we are, numerical beings. I mean, round numbers matter to people. You have your 50th wedding anniversary. It's more important than your 49th wedding anniversary and your 51st, but is it? Only because we just think in tens. And your stock hits $100, and that's a 1% move from 99 to to $100. We kind of notice it more. And Treasury is three percent, and he broke through four percent today. Well, what was the difference between yesterday when it went from three eighty to three ninety? It goes from three ninety to four. It's more important to us. It's the psychology of it, and I think what happened or is happening, we'll we'll have to see with the banks. I think this is critical to note: is you have your number in anything, and that number is is what prompts you to act. And when your bank account is paying you 0.01%, and a lot of them are, and well, okay, here's Jay Powell at 0%, so you just, what am I going to do? I'm at 0.01%. And then the Fed takes money market rates up to 1%. You know, it's 1% of it, but you don't really notice. And one of the reasons I say that is because maybe you notice and I notice. But to the rest of the people in society that aren't living this every day, do they notice? They don't. They, they got their own jobs. They're doing their own thing. They're an optometrist. They're in lawn care. Whatever they do for a living, they're not living money market rates like me. And so at 1% money market rates, all right, you just keep it over here at uh, Bank of America earning 0.01% or at your regional bank. And then next thing you know, it's 2%. Like, ooh, there's 199 basis points gap between the 0.01 that they're paying me and the 2% I could get if I actually bothered to click the button. Now, over here, off screen, this is my screen with my to-do list sometimes. I got like 90 things on this to-do list. What do I got to do? Oh, I got to go get the oil changed at some point. That's on the to-do list. Ah, uh, you know, the kid kicked the soccer ball in the house, broke the window. I got to get a window guy in here. I'll call the window guy next week. I don't have time to call this window guy. I don't have time to move this checking account into a money market fund because I've had this banking relationship for 10 or 20 years. 
I'll do it next week. Next week comes around and that optometrist does not move that money or that small business owner or that CFO of the mid-sized business. At 3%, the money's still not moving. At some number, some psychologically critical number, between the 0.01%, there becomes a spread that, at, that moves that thing from number 77 on the to-do list to number one. We say, whatever it is you got in there, $10,000, $10 million. All right, money market rates are now four. I need to get it out of the First National Bank of my local city. And that money moves. That's the bank walk. And the reason it's the walk and not the run is because when SBB and Signature were going under, that's the run. This money needs to move now. I don't have time to eat this sandwich. The money needs to move now. The bank walk is, what am I doing here? I've got this checking account. They're paying me. You know, screw them. I'm moving the money. That's the bank walk. And then at 5%, the bank walk really accelerated. And you know, next thing you know, we'll see. I mean, Jay Powell might want to go to 6%. There's a lot of these banks. I think the national average savings account rate, it's, it, it's 0 0.5 something. It's, it, it goes up like a basis point a month. It's like 53, 54 basis points at this point. You could drive a truck through that gap. So we're going to have an issue here where a lot of this money is going to shift into the money market funds. That is a, well, because there's going to be a lot of debt issued by the federal government. So that's <laughs> people buying the treasuries. But at the margin, does that local bank or that mid-sized bank have the capital to give you the marginal loan on your restaurant venture that you want to engage in? Or, big question mark, your office building. That's its own issue, right? I just don't have the deposit base. Maybe my marginal propensity to lend you um, on your small building or your, your house or your personal loan, that stuff starts to get cramped. And we're going to see that. We're going to see if the, if the bank walk ends up perpetuating itself. I mean, it's kind of evened out, truth be told, in the last month or two. But that's one of the issues. And that's one of those, I think, unintended consequences when you ratchet up rates by 500 basis points in 15 months. What's fascinating to me about this is um, as the rates went up, people got frozen. Their businesses got frozen. They got frozen geographically. Like yeah. the rate definitely created friction in an economy. So if you think low rates, tons of liquidity, lots of greasing of transactions, people are doing all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff. The opposite is now true. Talk about this freezing of people in their homes where they can't sell their homes. They can't buy new homes. They can't move. It just feels like across the United States, there's this great freeze that has occurred. What's driving mm -hmm. that? There's, I mean, and, and the, the word freeze applies to that and also applies to your willingness to spend on discretionary items in 2024, partly because a lot of that money was, I was doing a, a tweet storm on this earlier, where it's, a lot of the money has been spent from the COVID money. And so it's not only a freezing in place on the housing, which is one of my favorite issues, but a freezing place on whether or not you're going to buy a washing machine in 2024 because you bought it. Remember, Pop, they were giving out, I, I, there's so many stimulus programs, you forget this stuff. There was at one point, it was something like, let's say you were uh, husband and wife and, and two kids. And it was $1,200 for the husband, $1,200 for the wife, $500 for the kid, the kids in diapers, and $500 for the other kid. And, you know, you talk about freezing. Well, if that couple had like a seven-year-old functioning dishwasher during COVID, like, oh, you know, this thing doesn't clean these dishes. There's spots on these dishes. I hate this thing. In a normal world, you hate the dishwasher, but you're middle class. You ride that dishwasher out until the thing conks out on you. Then when you wake up, hey, why is this button it's dead on me? Or it's leaking onto my flooring. All right, fine. I'll buy another dishwasher. That's the way. That's the middle class mindset. Heck, that's the upper class mindset too i mean you, you don't replace something that's generally functioning and but if you suddenly had three grand coming in or whatever the number is 
in the middle of COVID and you knew that dishwasher was the bane of your existence, then you are scrapping a functioning dishwasher and purchasing a new one in 2020 or 2021. And so the freeze on that side is, well, now you've got a two-year-old dishwasher. And so does an inordinate mass of society. And that group of people are not in the market naturally for a 2024 dishwasher. And that applies down the list. You know, the, the, the vacation you always wanted to take to some location that tickles your fancy, you took that vacation. The, um, you know, like my wife might, you know, she might say, hey, I really want the, uh, a nice watch. You know, well, maybe that watch was purchased. And so you wonder about discretionary spending. Now, that's one kind of the freeze. Now, I think what you were referring to was the, the golden handcuffs on housing. And this is one of those, oh, this is such an interesting topic. And, and it parlays into so many other topics, uh, you know, in a situation where, where labor mobility is, is rigid on account of people stuck in their homes. Is that the type of world where you want to buy 40 and 50 times uh, multiples on stocks um, in a in a grinding and put a stick in the gears type of maybe it's not a depression. Maybe it's not even a deep recession, just just a muddling through. And it could be a multi-year muddling. And what I don't think people fully realize because they're not in it yet is that more and more people will realize it. And what is it is that mortgage rates got up into the, into the unknown zone here where it's a rate of change situation. It's not that mortgage rates got to five, got to six, got to seven, and that we compare that to historical mortgage rates. What's important is that we compare it to, to where they were at the trough, sub 3% on a conforming mortgage in this country. And I think people are passively aware, but if they're not in the market to be moving or shifting their life circumstances, they only know what they're hearing secondhand on this. And with each passing day, somebody else gets divorced. Somebody else has a baby. Somebody else dies. And these are catalysts among many to move homes. If you leave, State A, whatever, you're in New York and there's a job offer next door in Pennsylvania. How, how are you going to do that? <laughs> you got to, you're locked in a two and seven eights. You're locked in a two and seven eights. If you want to move from New York to Philly, here's your 7% mortgage. How, how are you going to do that? And so there's a labor mobility um, issue here. It goes much deeper than that, but um, uh, it doesn't end tomorrow. How does it end? Well, you wonder if at something like a thought, well, who knows what the number is, but at some lower rate, do these stuck sellers finally get to the point where they can liquidate? And this is, you know, I mean, if they keep short money anywhere up here in the fives, all right, so you're looking at what's, where are we on a 10 year T note? 380, 390. Um, normally, the mortgage should be like 150-ish over a 10-year treasury. So let's say it's 390. I got I to gotta look at the quote here. I don't know. 390 plus 150. So it should be about 540 in a normal market. But we've got a skittish market, and we know that money is tightening. Um, and we'll see if it tightens further. And so, you know, a mortgage news daily is like 708 on a, on a mortgage. So you're several hundred basis points higher. In fact, the level, the level of spread from a 30 year mortgage to a 10 year T note. And that is the comp because 30 year mortgages don't last 30 years. People move, people pay them off. So the comp is a 10 year T note. Um, that spread is as wide as it was during the global financial crisis. And the issue that I think you're going to increasingly see is you're going to see old people retirees in five bedroom houses they prefer to be in a two bedroom apartment in Fort Lauderdale but they're stuck in the five bedroom place in Minneapolis and young people with kids that in a normal world may have the means to be purchasing a three or four bedroom single family home stuck in a one or two bedroom apartment 
because either they have the two and two and three quarters, two and seven eighths mortgage, um, uh, or they're renting. Now, there is some trigger number where the math starts to work better for you to list the house, and then you get that increase in labor mobility. But I, I just don't know that it's fully appreciated, and I I worry that the societal dissatisfaction. I mean, we all see these statistics: X percent of Americans think the country is going the wrong direction. That will rise with each passing day. And and kind of the theory I've said to this is like, okay, let's say it was 2022 and, and the thing happened. That thing is a baby got born or you reached retirement. The thing that catalyzes the move. He said, well, huh, I can't do it. We got to wait around. We're, we can't even list this house. We can't buy another house. And that affects this percentage of the public. Be ready to move in 2022, but can't do it cohort. As the days go on, somebody else is having a baby. Somebody else is dying. Now you have the 2022 cohort. They're angry. And then also, and then it's 2023. They're still in that cohort. because They can't do it now either. And now these new people are rising, are, are rising to the occasion of can't move, totally stuck. And I don't think a 6% mortgage gets it done. I mean, it's literally, it's literally, if you just go to a mortgage calculator, if you're in something like a typical three, let's say you're in a three bedroom home and you want to move to a four bedroom home and leave the old mortgage and go to a new one, you're looking at tripling your payment. <laughs> tripling, because everybody refied during COVID. And so, you know, you think about like these issues where, oh, you know, a company wants to move its headquarters to another state. Well, I'm, I'm in Chicago. I know that story well. Everybody's been taking the stuff out of the loop and moving it, moving it to another state. Well, you're going to have to pick up new staff once you're in that other state, once you're in Florida, wherever it may be, because you, in my case, these Illinois people, they can't pick up and leave. They're locked in at 3%. So it's, 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 it's weird and it's wacky and it's, it's a problem for hiring. In that if we still have a demand for workers and you really have the ideal candidate, they need to be a 100% virtual worker because you're not going to be able to get them to move a, a large distance unless you pay them so handsomely so as to justify the job transfer. And I'm not sure that that concept is fully appreciated. When you see the Fed sitting on the sidelines watching all this happen, do they care? Do they care if asset prices are crashing? Do they care that people are frozen in their homes? Do they care that they've essentially created this destruction? Or are they just looking at a tight labor market and an inflation number that seems to be coming down on the headline, you know, trailing 12 months, and they're yeah. saying, we should, we deserve a trophy. Get, get out a birthday cake for us because we're doing a great job. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the weird things is that this, this, they want to create unemployment. That is a major communication disconnect. Um, well, it's like, well, I, you know, I can't get in the minds of Jay Powell and what, whether or not he cares or, I mean, I, guy, guy's probably a decent guy. Who knows? But it, it's, I just don't understand what was it that you were witnessing that would have, kept you in quantitative quantitative easing for so long we were at full employment um you know we've been sub four percent unemployment for quarters and quarters and quarters at this point and the inflation was readily apparent i don't know whether or not it's just living in the, in this silo where you don't like maybe like maybe jay powell just doesn't go to this I mean, guy probably doesn't go to the supermarket on his own do you remember when he said uh, somebody asked him at a uh, press conference about income inequality? And the only reason I remember him saying this is because we had a field day with it on the Internet. He said, okay. no one has come into my office and told me that they're falling behind because of our policies. Like some, I'm paraphrasing, but like something like that. 
And so, of well, course, it's like, hey, man, I'm like a educated person who knows what the Federal Reserve is. And I know the power that you have both to create and destroy wealth. Mm-hmm. I don't know where your office is. If I wanted to come tell you that, I don't think they'd let me in the building. <laughs> like, like, what do you mean that you're not creating income and quality just because no one told you it? Like the people what? who are suffering at the, you know, kind of the feet of your policies, they don't even know who you are. <laughs> All they see is the grocery store prices are going up, right? You know, if you put your stuff in the shoes of like a 2021 situation where, I mean, it, it's not even like, you know, before dot com, in terms of speculative excesses, you really got to go back to 1929. And so, huh, you know, imagine if, if, if we're living in a parallel universe where it's 30, 40, 50 years after 1929, you can forgive. Well, maybe you can forgive because they've forgotten about a mania that occurred within the span of their own adult lifetimes. Now, I've told you, I'm not very old, but I was paying attention and I was on top of the dot-com bubble. That happened when I was a teenager. And so I've had a spidey sense for bubbles and speculative excesses ever since then that I would hypothesize a central bank governor would too. I mean, for crying out loud, for crying out loud, what is someone whose job is to manipulate the monetary mechanism? What is someone doing as a, this person, whoever this person may be, a, 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 you know, a central bank, a, a governor of one of the 12 regional banks or something, what are they doing? on a daily basis as a matter of their hobby in 1996, 1997, 1998, before they reach this current state of their career where they're at the pinnacle of their career. My guess, they were watching CNBC like I was and watching eBay rip and watching Yahoo rip and watching pets.com. And, and truth be told, back then, watching Coca-Cola and Pfizer and General Electric and all these other ones that were just absolutely zooming on previous pie-in-the-sky pie type concepts of the era. This is when I was a teenager because I'm, I'm a geeky guy that's interested in the stock market, and that's what I did. And that's what you do if you have aspirations of being a, an extremely high-ranking person in a central bank by the time you're 40 or 50 or 60 years old like these people. Okay, so now that's how you spent your late 1990s. All right, and then turn around from the, from the NASDAQ high in March of 2000, and it's only five years later, you see the most legendary housing bubble. So now you've got two under your belt that you would think would be gut-punching because you really kind of have to think about like these things just, you know, booms and busts. And, and maybe if you're of the older variety, you know, you know, Japan in 89, 90, maybe you've got three under your belt. Who knows? And I'll give a little hat tip to the 87 crash too. Maybe that was something that would be forming in someone's psyche. And then now here, 2021 rolls around. It's like meme stocks and these you saw this stuff on Twitter with these with these these knuckleheads you know, purchasing fifty properties and they're out there by the pool with champagne and, and all this stuff and they don't they don't have they don't have two nuggets of wisdom in their head they're making their money solely because of of a low cost of uh, of debt on a levered asset and on and on it goes I mean what was the Rivian IPO hundred billion. <laughs> And so you're sitting there, ostensibly having watched .com on CNBC in your afternoons from your dorm room or from the comfort of of your your office where you were working in money management in the 1990s. And then you watch the housing bubble, of which it may have affected your own personal properties because you're an established player in global finance and maybe you own properties 
in Southern Cal or South Florida, where that was the pinnacle of the housing bubble. And it's like, what's going on here? We, how many SPACs needed to launch in 2020 and 2021 for you to take money off of 0%? My favorite part of this whole situation was that the stock market was ripping. Inflation was at 7%. They were still suppressing interest rates to zero and they were buying assets in the market. Mm -hmm. And they were surprised when it went to nine because I believe mm -hmm. at the end of 2021, they were still saying uh, they thought that it was going to be transitory. It was like only right at the very end did they start to give up on the transitory stuff. And so in some way, 7% inflation still did not convince them that maybe let's take the foot off the gas. Well, and then there's a whole, and this is, here's the problem with this is that, um, and I've said this in the past. I mean, I went off to school to study things like interest rates and stock market valuations. And as the years went on, and this has always been the case with, you know, macro type things is that at one point I had to be become an amateur expert in Greek politics, right? During that, during that saga with Brexit. And then you have to become a, uh, an amateur expert in British politics for Brexit. And then you have to become an amateur epidemiologist and so on. And the truth of the matter is, is that because of the existence of these committees that determine the cost of money, we have to be psychologists in that, can you imagine? I mean, you don't know me, but imagine if your job was for you to assess the fears and aspirations of Jeff Weniger and how that may affect what Jeff Weniger is going to do to interest rates in six weeks. Or what tie color you wear or how long you talk or whatever other nonsense thing that people have invented to try to identify if he's giving signals to the market. Well, and then here's, so here's my theory. I mean, it's like, what? This could be so wrong. In fact, it's the odds are that this theory is wrong. But here's the theory. You're Jay Powell. The SPAC boom, the Rivian IPO, the speculative excesses, GameStop. <laughs> it's just, a, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that they were engaging not only not QT, but active QE during all this. And now there's egg on their face. I, I can't believe I did this in retrospect, you know, SPACs and all this. Now, I don't want to go down in history as the person that let inflation rip. Now I need to go to complete opposite extreme to redeem myself, Jay Powell, as the new coming of Paul Volcker. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, I think it's kind of like where you say, oh, oh, you know, my, my, my father never spent any time with us as kids. Therefore, I'm going to spend so much time with the kids, you, you, you know, or, or like these 180 degree things. Like this, this, this occurred to me. And so now I'm going to make sure that I do the exact opposite or, or the other one is you do exactly like your father did, right? You, it's, you, there's no, nothing in between. And I think that there's some of that going on. Well, I messed up on the inflation thing. Now I'm going to take it to the other extreme and crush this. Even though the disinflationary portents are already in the system, they're, they're myriad. Um, you know, people often say, well, you know, what, what do you like? Uh, you're a shill for a deflation thesis or a disinflation thesis. Like, well, actually quite the opposite. I'm just at this stage in the economic cycle, the liquidation of the cycle. Um, I mean, I, the logic of the Medicare and Social Security situation is that it will inflate out of it. But that's one of the disconnects when you're tweeting stuff. Like, hey, I'm tweeting a 12-month thesis here. It's clear in the tweet. It said 2024, that type of thing. Hey, you know, 2030, 2040, I mean, yeah, they're going to have to inflate themselves out of this stuff. But in the here and now, they've already crushed inflation. This, and here's one of the things that's tough. Tough to communicate in 280 characters, that's for sure. When I say crush inflation, I mean keeping 
ridiculously high prices on even keel or no longer rising at a rate of change. Right. So you still go to the supermarket and it's still like, what? I mean, I got a pastrami sandwich. I walked down the street here. I got a pastrami. What did I get? A pastrami sandwich, chips, and a drink. And it was 22 bucks from the, from the deli. What? <laughs> but it's that it stays at 22 bucks. So on a rate of change basis, I think that near term, they do end up hitting the target because you have the, you know, the, the global supply chain pressure indexes come off the boil. You know, you're seeing in things like, like the Empire State survey, you know, prices paid. Uh, Texas manufacturers from the Dallas Fed, that's, they're basically saying, um, deflation over there. There's many of these portents. And, and truth be told, the other thing that, well, this goes back to the, the CPI calculations. The CPI, it's so important for people to understand the lag effects of the, of the CPI situation where CPI, no doubt about it, when we got to nine on CPI, the real number was higher than that. And the difference is, is the dentist and the plumber, and what was the example we were using earlier, the optometrist, they all know that. It's the economist that doesn't know that. Do they not know it or did they know it and they were lying? Because I find it so hard to believe that an intelligent economist can look at the CPI metric and all of the coverage that's out there critiquing it and say, nope, I think the CPI is correct. <laughs> I think that I think that this that the street knows the CPI is incorrect. But what happens is, is, I mean, think about what I do for a living. I open up my charts. I'm looking at my charts, writing research for wisdom tree. You just look at it so often. You're so used to saying the CPI is this. Mm -hmm. And if everyone else is looking at it, then you kind of have to use it because it's the metric that everyone uses. Right. It's a data feed. It's a, it's literally a time series. And you're looking at it and CPI is 4% right now. And that's the number. Well, that number doesn't really reflect, reflect reality. Sometimes it's too high. Sometimes it's too low. Most of the time it's underestimating inflation mm-hmm. or the overwhelming majority of the time it's underestimating inflation because of the, the so-called hedonic adjustments. And I've picked on these hedonic adjustments on the automobile side at great length. And I say, here's my deal. I mean, you got to kind of know me a little bit, but here's my deal on autos. Here's what I want you to sell me. The safest car that you can manufacture that's going to get me from point A to point B with the highest probability that we will survive a car crash and give me Sirius XM radio and give me heating and cooling. Sell me that car. You can't sell me that car. Because now the darn thing comes with some video screen for the kids to watch movies in the backseat, which I don't want. In fact, that's the antithesis of what I want. It comes with heated seats. That's going to really help you in Phoenix. It comes with, well, I could deal with those. These automatic windows are pretty nice. It's got 37,000 buttons in the center console that I don't want to push. And not only that, but those buttons are flat screen stuff. So I have to divert my eyes from the road, which is not what I want to do because I, what I want from this discretionary purchase is, again, the safest thing that will get me from point A to point B. I don't need to impress people with my vehicle. I got kids back there. But you must purchase all of these things that come with the vehicle and you must pay for it. And in so doing, They say, well, when you look at a 2023 model of a vehicle and compare that to something in 1993, look at how much better all these things are. And I'm okay with the hedonic adjustments for the safety, the the onset of the anti-lock brake, the onset of the airbag, the better seatbelts, the crash tests, all that stuff. But you're paying for all these things that you don't really want. And then what you do is when you run a time series on what's actually happened with cars, we're like $48,000 on the average new car in this country. Um, you run a time series on it, the price of the new cars goes like this, and the price of the CPI goes like this. I'm looking at my screen so mm-hmm. I can see myself like this. And we say, oh, auto inflation is X percent every year. <laughs> no, it's not like that at all. And, you know, they, they messed up 
I mean, the BLS, I mean, the, the housing calculations in there are just so weird. Um, you know how they do the, the, the cost of ownership with the owner's equivalent rent? My, my, I don't know if you want to. My favorite um, is that they still send people physically into the store to find the thing on the shelf and write down the number. Like no, you, you can't you ask any man or woman in America if they can send their significant other to go to the fucking grocery store and get exactly what they told them to get. It's impossible. Well, and then and do then it with a whole list of things and expect it to have 100% accuracy. There's no way. Yeah. Wow. And then, I mean, it's things have changed through the years. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but and maybe this is where the hedonic adjustments come in. But when I was a kid. I could be so wrong in this, but when I was a kid, I feel like ground beef was ground beef. Here's the ground beef. <laughs> Take it. And now it's like, well, there's grass fed ground beef and there's 95% lean and all this. And then they've got that like impossible burger stuff. I don't know. That's, oh, that's a nightmare. Nobody wanted to eat that. Um, not me. I don't want to eat that. Um, what do you think about Bitcoin? You think Bitcoin could be the solution to all this? In terms of a programmatic monetary policy without a central bank driven by humans all trying to guesstimate what's going on and just say, screw it, we're not going to respond to the rest of the world, we're just going to do our thing? Or do you think that's a nightmare as well? You know, here's my problem, and, and I here's here's the thing I keep coming back to with, with Bitcoin. And this, you know, I feel like I need to, to give a, a, a background here. I was when I was getting really into this stuff as a teenager, I mean, the early books that I was reading uh, were like silver and gold bug books Yep. in the nineties. And I, you know, is the inflation in the 1970s going to come back uh, deficit spending perpetually entitlement programs and these types of things. What I worry about Bitcoin is, I mean, it does have this limitation as to how many can be created. But if the issue is with fiat currency is that the dollar is backed by nothing, Bitcoin is also backed by nothing. So that's going to be, you know, it's. So let me, let me throw a, a, um, an idea. Cause I think that this is, uh, this is my response. And I think people in the Bitcoin community, but it is a theory, just like anything else, because to your point, gold is something that is physical. You can pull it out of the ground. You can touch it, you know, all, all the benefits of, uh, of gold, etc. If you think about the world that we're heading into, and I was to ask you, what is the most valuable commodity in the world? Some people would mm -hmm. argue oil or wheat or, you know, whatever. I right. would argue computing power is the most valuable commodity. Now, there's a lot of intricacies and nuances. What, what, it, how do you measure it? What's the cost? Who's the supplier? All that stuff. But just if you hold constant and say, okay, computing power is at least going to be very valuable, if not the most valuable commodity in the world. Bitcoin in some way, that's what is backing it, right? It's the strongest computer network in the world. Now, most people think of backing, and I put that in air quotes, as like um, the security of the network. You can't hack it because it's got this strong computing network, et cetera. But I have this theory that like maybe Bitcoin's price is actually just putting a value on what is the strongest computer network in the world worth, right? Yeah. That, that the immutable kind of public ledger, like what is that worth? What, well, that's, maybe that's just the market cap of Bitcoin. And right now we think it's worth, you know, 500 to $600 billion. It was worth more. Now it's worth less. And like, that's the game. Yeah. I don't know. And it's, it's, and it's, it's such a difficult question because it's new, right? I mean, we've only had it in this, cycle it's what it's what you know 10 or 15 years old well i guess it's 10 or 15 years old at this point um and we have clearly it's you know i'm from the etf shop so we have a ton of bitcoin exposure in the british business the american business and so forth you know in terms of figuring out if it's going to hold a place in a, in an asset allocation or in people's spending patterns you almost need to prognosticate whether or not they're going to come forth with these central bank digital currencies Mm -hmm. which I, it's very difficult. Well, I have trouble conceptualizing why some people are uh, on board with a lot of public policy initiatives that make zero sense to me. I also struggled as to why anybody would want a central bank digital currency. 
So I'm, I want these people to monitor my bank accounts more than they already are in the event that I fall into the into the trap of being considered an enemy of the state. One of the things that cannot be um, conceptualized by people is you might not be an enemy of the state in the year 2023, but some viewpoint that you have in 2033 or 2043 could be considered extremely radical. And are you sure you want a CBDC? So that's the bull case. There are things you cannot say today that you could definitely say five years ago and no one would have blinked. And right. I think that's kind of what you're getting at is uh, yeah. it's not because of anything that you do or say that you intentionally are trying to be malicious or um, uh, have an alternative viewpoint. It's that culture right. and society can change. And therefore, if you don't change with it, you kind of, you know, you were inbounds to start and now you're out of bounds, but it's not because you ever took a step. You didn't move. It's just a society. And I think that's been a lot of the, I think that's been a lot of the appeal um, with crypto. Um, you, you know, you just think everybody's got their thing that pushes their buttons. And, and the other thing is, is, you know, it's kind of on the tail end of, of, well, it's, it's a lot of, it's a function of when you kind of reached adulthood, when you got into the system, when, when these critical life events occurred for you. Um, and I was too young to be a homeowner during the housing crash. Fortunate for me, you know, cause I was in my mid twenties and what if I was five years older mm -hmm. and I had to climb out from underneath that thing um, in the state of Florida, in California, that, you know, Nevada, some of the worst hit states of the housing bubble. What would my perception have been on the system? Right. And I mean, I've, you know, as you can see from my earlier comments, a lot of my perceptions were formed in the 1990s, watching Alan Greenspan mess things up. It's good. I'm just a product of when I was born and came of age. And so the, the, the thing that I suspect would be advisable for the 20 year olds and for the 60 year olds is to both investigate, well, why is 60 year olds so much talking about gold? Why is this person so much talking about crypto? Maybe I can learn something from this person. Maybe, and it's hard when you're, when you're so much hubris when you're 20 years old. Maybe, just maybe, the 60-year-old has seen a lot of things and knows something about the world. And maybe, just maybe, your 60-year-old perception of this snot-nosed kid that doesn't know any better, well, maybe this kid can run circles around you on tech. Maybe you should learn what the kid has to say, too. And I think that there's a lot of that going on. We're so siloed. Social media, you could see it in your feeds. People won't listen to anybody. They, you know, they like on the total attack. I think for investment success, whether it's in crypto or any one of these alternatives uh, to the dollar, this type of concept, you got to be willing to open it up a little bit and read different perspectives listen to what a lot of different people have to say because like i said forecasting is not easy um and you know we've got we've got issues here with respect to the the, the dollar long term i don't know how we're going to get out from underneath this wanton spending and you know when i look at it at the municipal level i don't really know what i'm getting i got potholes everywhere I don't get snow plow removal, snow removal. What am I, why are we spending all this federal, state, and local money like a Nordic region? And what are we getting for it? And then how do we get out from underneath this burden? I mean, here in Chicago, I mean, what's the number? Tens of billions of dollars in unfunded pension liabilities. Well, what am I getting for that? Is the federal government going to bail that out? If so, it's more money that must be mustered up. I mean, it's, it's, you, you almost have to inflate away these fixed obligations long term. So I think that's probably one of those things that's a little bit of a disconnect when I'm over here tweeting this disinflationary 2024 stuff, because that's where we are in the cycle and some of these long term effects. And, you know, it's, we've had inflation my whole life. We just, that's the other thing. That's the other thing that's fascinating. 
we all talk about, let's say, the 2010s, for example. There was no inflation in the 2010s. Well, no, 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 no. It was just lower than normal. I assure you, your rent went up every single year in the 2010s. But we, we actually, this is, this is where words change minds. We have people who believe we didn't have any inflation. Take the Japanese. The Japanese have been in deflation since 1990. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. They're just running 1% or 2% inflation. They're destroying their money at the pace of 1% or 2% per year. It's just not the 3 or 4% that the Americans do. But, man, the semantics will change your worldview. you got to be careful with the semantics. When you look out over the future, my last question is, what do you anticipate happens over the really long term? Does the United States dollar lose global reserve status? Are Americans' lives better or worse than they are today in terms of like the quality of life? Um, is there just my, more bifurcation and like income inequality? Like, what what are some of the things that you feel maybe most confident over oh, the long term without having to put a time frame on them? The most difficult question. All right, look, to lose dollar reserve status, you need to have a breakdown in your rule of law. Now, I think we we we've had that. It's just what is the order of magnitude of that breakdown? And and there's the rule of law in terms of the order of civil society, that type of law, finding criminals, punishing criminals, that type of thing. And then there's the rule of contract law. And contract law is absolutely critical. We, we broke contract law day after day after day during the global financial crisis. Um, the General Motors bailout, for example, you know, is the company insolvent or is it not insolvent? Um, but the bank bailouts, the insurance company bailouts, the, the homeowner bailouts back then, we had, a, we, had a, we had a societal contract. You purchase this home, you pay this debt off. You speculated down in Delray, Lauderdale, Boynton, that type of thing. Well, you need to own that. And we broke contract law as a society back then. I think that that was a, a something that brought forth essentially, you know, a lot of the the, the disconnect between the, the public and the government back then. And I don't think that was good for the dollar long term. Now, over the long haul, you know, it's like you, you leave a bad boyfriend or girlfriend, but you need to have one that's better lined up. And so what are you supposed to go? Oh, the euro? I mean, we were talking 10 years ago, well, even recently about the euro breaking up. That's a risk long haul. So I don't think you lose your reserve set status to the euro. It wouldn't be the yen. I mean, that's an economy that the Japanese economy hasn't been able to get it together for something like 30 years. So it wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be the, you know, the, the, the Chinese. It wouldn't be the Renminbi because, well, who wants to move capital towards China? Um, in terms of havens, I think that we should be heartened long term about the quality uh, of life in general. Throughout all of history, we've only ever seen quality of life improve. There's periods of time where it will devolve wars. You know, during wars, your quality of life declines. But it's an inexorable pace forward um, with time. I mean, you know, I think I think you ask a typical person what might be their concerns with respect to whether or not their children will have it better off than them. I would think that maybe their concern would be their individual rights, um, you know, the, the growth of the surveillance state, that type of thing. But generally speaking, you know, you go back to you go back to the Depression in the 1930s and, you know, the guy, you know, FDR, his whole thing was getting a chicken in every pot. Like, that was a big dinner if you could get a chicken in every pot. Well, now it's like my wife went to Costco. A chicken was five bucks. You know, there were three chickens, five bucks. Um, so you could put a chicken on the table for five bucks in this country. And that's because of technological advancement. Um, you know, we've, we've, for the most part, made leaps and bounds globally and certainly in the United States in terms of uh, eradicating hunger or intense poverty these types of issues. So I, I suspect on net, the future is positive, but you got to make sure that we have so many unknown technologies that I think could really restrict individual freedoms 
in the future. And I don't know that I fully understand those technologies. I think one of them would be the CBDC. I, I don't know how anybody could be in favor of that. Um, and that would be something that would be top of my mind in terms of risks. Where can we send people to find you on the internet or learn more about the work you're doing at Wisdom Tree? Well, I'd say most of the stuff that you would see, it's a lot of, I do a lot of macro work on Twitter. The Twitter stuff is um, really how we get the message out because Wisdom Tree is a mid-sized asset manager. We specialize in dividends primarily, but we have businesses across asset classes. Um, I do some posts on LinkedIn as well. We have the Wisdom Tree blog. I write white papers. Um, and then I do, you know, I do pods like this. I do a lot of TV spots. But I'd say if you want to get your everyday dose of Wanniger, <laughs> I'd say hit me up on Twitter. And if you like macro, that's what you'd find there. Jeff, I learned so much today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. We definitely will do it again in the future. Um, and uh, I just appreciate, I think, kind of uh, your humor, your uh, understanding of the nuances of the macro environment, but also your willingness to uh, just kind of say it how you see it, which uh, is increasingly rare in today's society. So thank you so much. And uh, we'll definitely do it again. Thanks, Anthony. All right. Take it easy, man.